Bum, 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 I ran. Bum, 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 I ran. is Saturday night on The Circle on 93 WIPC. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Saturday Night on The Circle, where really I only have one thing to say. Weakness that is projected by President Biden has once again resulted in igniting a conflict. Uh, Three Americans lost their lives in a one-way drone attack launched by Iranian-backed rebels on Tower 22 of the Jordanian Defense Front, and 40 other Americans were injured in the process. This is exactly what we told you would happen when the Biden administration and the State Department released billions of dollars in frozen assets to Iran, that it would endanger the lives of American troops. That has come to fruition. And just like that, we find ourselves in yet another global conflict with more strikes to come. This reported by MSNBC. Secretary Austin has just released this statement again confirming that this operation has started. He said that following an attack on U.S. and coalition forces in Jordan this past Sunday that killed three U.S. service members at President Biden's direction, U.S. military forces today conducted strikes on seven facilities, which included more than 84 targets in Iraq and Syria. That's what we heard earlier. And then he said this. This is the start of our response. The president has directed additional actions to hold the Revolutionary Guard and affiliated militias accountable uh, for their attacks on U.S. and coalition forces. So again, indicating these strikes today are just the beginning of a longer uh, campaign against uh, these militias and the Iran uh, Revolutionary Guard that is advising them and enabling them. Just like that, embroiled in another conflict. I want you to think about this. People used to say that President Trump would walk us into World War III, but under President Biden, we have the conflict in Ukraine that he invited because of his weakness when he projected that the United States would not intervene if Russia transgressed upon their border, and that's exactly what happened. Because of his weakness, uh, the, the Palestinians in Gaza attacked Israel, resulting in the fatality of more than 1,300 civilians and countless times, dozens of times across the administration, American forces have been attacked by Iranian-backed assets. This, it's absolutely disgusting what's going on and it's because Biden projects weakness. His foreign policy has failed. He drew one red line in the sand and they crossed it. This was one message that the administration had actually managed to project equally across all fronts, don't, don't do it, don't attack soldiers, and that's what happened. What is your message to Hezbollah and its backer, Iran? Don't. Here we go. Don't, don't, don't. What's the message to Iran? Don't. It was very important to send a very clear message to anyone who might seek to take advantage of the conflict in Gaza to threaten our personnel uh, here or anywhere else in the region. Don't do it. Wow. The 
land of make-believe. So that definitely failed. And Biden's weakness continues to endanger American lives. Thanks for listening to the show, by the way. I don't think I introduced myself, but I'm guessing you already knew. I'm Ethan Hatcher, and this is Saturday Night on the Circle with producer Jack on the board. And we're talking about the failures of Biden's foreign policy, how it endangers American lives, and how it's gotten us involved in now three conflicts where we're supporting Ukraine, we're supporting Israel, and now we're pushing back on Iranian forces that we help fund by releasing frozen assets to Iran, which emboldened them to continue funding these hostile rebels in the region that have attacked American troops and continue to attack tankers and endanger global trade. This is absolutely ridiculous, and Tom Cotton is right. It's the failures over the last three years of Biden that have invited these attacks to occur. It's not just waiting for four or five days since the three Americans were killed and dozens wounded, some critically. It's three years of Joe Biden's failed Iran policy. Secretary Austin admitted to me last year in a, in a hearing that there'd been over 80 attacks on American positions, and we'd only retaliated four or five times. And that was before the October 7th atrocity in Israel. Now, just in the last three months, it's been over 160. And we continue to look the other way, turn the other cheek to shoot at empty warehouses in the desert. And it's sounding increasingly like that's exactly what's going to happen here. Because it's all part of the plan. Joe Biden has his foreign policy has failed. And yes, we should have retaliatory strikes because once you have aggressed upon the United States, that's a line that you cannot cross. But it wouldn't have happened if we projected strength in the region. Let's not forget, thanks to the Abraham Accords, Donald Trump had brought back several peace treaties with these Middle Eastern countries, getting them to recognize the sovereignty of Israel. Progress in the region was being made until the executive was switched, until Joe Biden became president. And since then, the region has destabilized in a number of different areas. Again, also Ukraine because of the weakness that he is projecting to world leaders, including the Russians. And there are historical parallels as well, because this isn't the first time that projection of United States weakness has invited foreign attack. Let's not forget the 1970s when President Carter was in power and the Iranian hostage situation and the administration itself, Biden, the Biden administration drawing parallels between this, uh, saying that the, the Middle East has not been so unstable since the 1970s when Jimmy Carter was president. This, according to uh, Secretary of State Abe Lincoln, Anthony Blinken. Hey, Blinken. Did you say Abe Lincoln? No, I say Abe Lincoln. I said, hey, Blinken, hold the reins, man. I would argue that we've not seen situation as as dangerous as the one we're facing now across the region since at least 1973. <laughs> I'm in danger. And what makes this equally disgusting is that up to this point, it hasn't been important for the Biden administration to attempt to project strength in the region until it became an election year. Until finally, more American lives have been endangered. Let's not forget the American lives that were lost in the attack on Afghanistan. Like, 
the foreign policy of Joe Biden has completely collapsed. And if nothing else, historians will reflect on this administration how in a number of key areas that policy failed because of the weakness of this president. And at a time when the region has already been destabilized, he's now encouraging the State Department to telegraph their support for a two-state solution that will further embolden these hostile attacks on our allies, on Israel, and it's further evidence of Joe Biden's dithering, this according to a report by Fox News. The question is, is this the time to put one's foot on the gas pedal on that issue? Because it will be perceived by many, especially those who have Israel's best interests not front of mind, that this is a reward for October 7th, that the issue of a two-state solution had been on kind of a low priority, and suddenly a genocidal attack is launched against Israel, and suddenly, what's on the agenda all of a sudden again? A Palestinian state. I, I am skeptical about, in the context of any Palestinian state, who do who does Minister, who does Foreign Secretary Cameron, and who does the U.S. government believe is now prepared to run that Palestinian state? Is Hamas? Do we want Hamas running the Palestinian state? No. Do you look at Hamas's leaders outside of Gaza? Things they're saying? They're saying they want a one-state solution, not a two-state solution. This isn't fun and games. This isn't theory. Biden's continued projection of weakness has very real consequences and is endangering American lives. This is why a change in leadership is utterly necessary, and it's pathetic that it's come to this. The one line in the sand that the Biden administration had drawn when they said don't has now been officially crossed. And we find ourselves in three conflicts around the world in which we're either supporting our allies or now directly intervening militarily and attacking rebels, all because of Joe Biden's failed foreign policy. Thanks for listening to Saturday Night on The Circle. Stay tuned. In the next segment, we'll tell you about the surprising number one hit on iTunes from an artist that I don't think you would expect. More details coming up next. I love those dear hearts and gentle people. This is Saturday Night on the Circle on 93 WIBC. Because those dear Look out, ladies and gentlemen, because there's a new artist on these mean streets who's hit number one on the iTunes store, and I think many of you will know him well. Ben Shapiro, of all people, has released... A new rap song. This is in association with Canadian artist Tom McDonald. Now, producer Jack, I, of course, have somewhat eclectic taste in music, being a collector of phonographs. Most of my music is about a century old. Do you, Are you uh, hip with the times? You listening to the rap music with the kids these days? Um, is, that, is that your thing? I, I guess so. I yeah. haven't really kept up with it that much because... I don't really listen to music like with lyrics, really. I mean, if you listen to any rap, you're probably listening to more rap than me. So yeah, yeah. so yeah. so I ma- mean, like I I I like it. I just um, yeah, don't keep up with it. I guess right I should say. Well, hey, say I'm I'm right there with you, but 
I did see this because the Washington Post released a very hand-wringing article. This is so concerning to them that a conservative pundit would rise to number one in the iTunes store. They were somewhat upset by this. And I thought we'd listen to his excerpt from the song, which tackles the culture wars and rap culture. And especially because you're listening to more rap music than I am. Maybe we can get your opinion. Is, is this a good song? I don't care if I offend you. Let's look at the stats. I've got the facts. My money like Lizzo. My pockets are fat. Homie, I'm epic. Don't be a whap. Dog, it's a yarmulke. Homie, no cap. Look at the graphs. Look at my charts. You're blowing money on strippers and cars. You go into prison. I'm on television. Dog, no one knows who you are. Keep hating on me on the internet. My comment section all woke Karens. And I make racks off compound interest. Y'all live with your parents. Nikki, take some notes. I just did this for fun. All my people download this. Let's get a billboard number one. This ain't rap. This ain't money. Cars and clothes. We ain't selling drugs. We ain't gonna overdose. We ain't pushing guns. Ain't remote and strip a pole. We won't turn your sons into thugs or your daughters into hoes. Okay, so I think like rap in general is pretty cringe. So I'm a little biased to interpret this as being pretty cringe. But you're a neutral third party here, producer Jack. Oh. What say you? Well, what, what, what's what's your opinions on this? This was most definitely cringe. Okay, like yeah, no, definitely cringe. Um, yeah, he had he had a ton of auto tune on his voice, and well, I don't think Ben can sing. He's yeah, not a no. trained singer. No, and but like just the the chanting in the background like the hey 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 and like i, I don't know that was well it was made by a canadian cringe. you don't really think right very cringe and you don't really think of canadians as being too up on the rap scene or at least i don't maybe but you know again i'm i'm pretty out of the loop with that stuff i will say no matter what you know it hit number one whatever it will never outdo ben shapiro's cover of wop have you heard it? I have not, but I don't oh, know if I want to hear it. Yes, but. yes, you do. Okay. You can't pass this up. Horrors in this house. There's some horrors in this house. There's some horrors in this house. There's some horrors in this house. I said certified freak. Seven days a week. There's some wet ass P words. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you effin' with some wet-ass P-word. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet-ass P-word. Give me everything you've got for this wet-ass P-word. Beat it up, N-word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P-word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top if I want to ride. I do a kegel while it's inside. Spit in my mouth. Look in my eyes. This P-word is wet. Come take a dive. And continue uh, along these oh lines. Uh, and it gets significantly... It's significantly more vulgar. Like, oh, a lot more vulgar. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I appreciate it being radio friendly, but wow. Well, the, the, con, the, <laughs> the, the, con, the context of that clip is he was outraged because WAP had recently came out 
and he was all, you know, upset as, oh, it's glorified, it's so vulgar, it's glorifying, just nasty stuff. And, well, who would listen to this tripe? And so in his criticism, he actually read out the lyrics and they turned that into a songify. So like <laughs> nothing that he ever does in the music world will ever exceed the pinnacle that is his cover of WAP. It's 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 gold. Yeah, this this is definitely better than his song that he actually tried on. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad. It's better than when he tried to make music. Oh my goodness. Thanks for listening to Saturday Night on the Circle. I'm your host, Ethan Hatcher. That's producer Jack. Beep, 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 beep. Pushing the buttons and doing the things to make the show function. So if you thought it was cringy for a political pundit to dabble in the world of musical entertainment, what would you think about an entertainer dabbling in the world of political punditry? In this case, guess who made a visit to the border who dr phil dr phil yes dr phil (laughs) here to tackle the immigration crisis showed up to the border and he had some criticism to levy towards uh, little miss borders are vice president kamala harris governor abbott says president biden has enticed tens of thousands of illegal immigrants away from 28 legal entry points along the Texas border and into the dangerous and deadly waters of the Rio Grande. According to the Department of Homeland Security, since President Biden took office, more than 6 million illegal immigrants have crossed Texas' southern border in just three years. That's more than the population of 33 different states in this country. And what about our Vice President, Kamala Harris? Did you know she's our country's immigration czar? Guess how many times she's been to the border? Once. What? You don't say. You don't say. You don't say. So there he is, Dr. Phil, on the border, here to tackle immigration crisis. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just thinking about how I've heard, like, deep fakes of his voice and he sounds like a deep fake of his voice so this isn't really helping him no yeah (laughs) was that like incredibly awkward for somebody who has a television presence this sounded like a very badly read pre-prepared statement i don't know what's going on like maybe he couldn't see the teleprompter because it was too bright out but yeah very forced yeah definitely so you know maybe Maybe we should just stay in our lanes. Like some people are good at being uh, television psychiatrists and some people are better at being political pundits and, you know, entertainers shouldn't be political pundits and political pundits shouldn't be musicians. Sounds like a good plan. All right. Glad we reached that conclusion here on Saturday night on The Circle. Stay tuned because in the next segment, we're going to play the most ridiculous highlights from this week in media, including Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg He's back to calling Rhodes racist again. And he'll tell you about bridge equity. Don't miss it. Coming up next. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown. Things will be great. This is Saturday night on the circle on 93 WIPC. Everything's waiting for you. Welcome back to the 
the show where this segment I'll play some highlights from President Joe Biden's transportation secretary here to explain how roads are racist and the means to bring about bridge equity. Don't miss these ridiculous antics. Plus, the president himself completely loses it, repeating a well-trod lie about the former President Trump before his brain melted down entirely at a celebration in South Carolina. You'll hear that. Plus, our good friend Jim Lucas has been getting himself into trouble again, this time brandishing his firearm in front of school children at the State House. Don't miss a moment of this uh, this week's edition of Hat Tricks with Hatcher. It's time for another one of Hatcher's Hat Tricks. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is Saturday Night on the Circle. I'm your host, Ethan Hatcher, and producer Jack is on the board, pushing the buttons and doing the things to make the show function. This week, we begin with the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg. He's back to his old wascally tricks again, talking about bridge equity and racist roads. Sorry, can I get a little bit more of a gloss on your work? I'm just interested to know what it means to examine equity and bridge maintenance. Uh, Looking at the communities next to bridges Uh, and comparing that with their uh, condition. And I thought my jokes were bad. No wonder the nation's infrastructure is falling apart bridges collapsing, trains derailing, when the transportation secretary is not spending his time managing transportation, but rather talking about these high-minded ideals, an academic approach to bridge maintenance, road equity, bridge equity. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous, asinine stuff, focusing on literally anything other than road maintenance, which is why it seems more than any other transportation secretary. It used to be like a relatively unknown position because, I mean, frankly, managing the nation's roads should be relatively straightforward once the funding has been allocated. But no, Pete Buttigieg seeking to distinguish him to distinguish himself by failing utterly at the task of a transportation secretary. Again, wasting his time lecturing us about how roads are racist. And then he acts like he's surprised. People are upset that he's not focused on more productive things. I'm shocked by how controversial it was when I made reference to the simple fact that a lot of black neighborhoods got wiped out by the way highways were built. And I didn't bring that up because I want everybody to feel bad about it. I brought it up because we can do something about it. Because we have funding to do something about it. I mean, the Hill District right here in Pittsburgh is one of thousands of examples around the country. Go outside, nerd. Get out. Go. I ain't got time to be distracted by your worthless chimes. Go on. Like, in the mind of Pete Buttigieg, the roads were planned not around efficiency, but evidently how to demolish the most African-American neighborhoods. Yes, it's absurd, but this is the way that those people think. Now, Joe Biden himself, of course, not a Rhodes Scholar, and he was repeating at a uh, South Carolina celebration uh, before the Democratic primary there, um, uh, repeating a well-trod lie that the president, former President uh, Donald Trump, had called World War I soldiers suckers and losers because he didn't want to appear at a cemetery outside of Paris. Donald Trump, when he was commander-in-chief, refused to visit a cemetery, U.S. cemetery outside of Paris for fallen American soldiers. 
and he referred to those heroes, and I quote, as suckers and losers. He actually said that. He said that. How dare he say that? How dare he talk about my son and all of us dressed like that? (laughs) (laughs) He was so lucid. He was so lucid for like most of that clip, which is a shocker for Joe Biden these days. And then, you know, he just kind of fell apart there at the end. And, And no, his son, by the way. You know, he's he's trying to lump his th- son in with veterans who died in war. His son died at home. His son died after his tour in Iraq of brain cancer, not from fire. So I, I feel like that should be thrown out there. Joe Biden trying to lump his son in with veterans who were killed in war. And that's absolutely not the case. But Joe Biden, very forgetful these days. Um, and in another moment where he fell apart on the stage, completely malfunctioned. Folks, um, uh, I, uh, if I were smart, I'd say thank you and leave. Yeah, if you were smart, that's that's probably what would happen. But we could potentially be looking at another four years of this guy if things don't go our way in November, which if you missed the first part of the show, we can't let that happen because of the weakness that Joe Biden projects. Does that kind of leader strike any level of fear or project any level of intimidation to threats around the world? I don't think so. Like, he is at best your lovable, kind of uh, uh, falling apart, um, senile old grandpa at the other end of the dinner table at Thanksgiving, except he's not. He's the president of the United States. This is a problem. But we have a lack of leadership, whether it's national, it's also local. Our old friend Jim Lucas, whether he's uh, he's always getting himself into some kind of trouble, whether he's stirring the pot on social media, temporarily coming off, getting on again, getting inebriated, blasting through a center interchange, jumping off the side of a highway, blowing through guardrails, trying to hide his vehicle. Or in this case, now he's evidently brandishing his firearm in front of school children, not really getting the whole point of concealed in the concealed carry operation. Now, these school children were visiting the state house, drawing attention to their issue being, you know, gun safety and uh, gun control. That's what the children were trying to talk with Indiana legislators about. And Jim Lucas, to put these gun control advocates' minds at ease, brandishes his firearm. Not a good move. In Australia, guns are banned all across, and there hasn't been a mass shooting there since in years. And and those people are dependent upon what their government tells them what they can and can't do. They're not free. You're not truly free if you can't defend yourself. So, do you mean by carrying it? Yes, I'm carrying it right now. See, and nothing about that makes me feel safe, though. You telling, I'm saying nothing about someone carrying a gun makes me feel safe. It makes me feel threatened. Okay, and that's what this is about. This is about feelings. Yes, it is. People want to kill you don't care about your feelings, though. People say, oh, it's dangerous to keep weapons in the home or the workplace. Well, I say, it's better to be hurt by someone you know accidentally 
than by a stranger on purpose. So any opportunity that he had to have an intellectual exercise with these children was completely thrown out the window when he's brandishing his weapon. That's that's not it's not how you're supposed to use firearms and no less at a time when another bill is being introduced through the state house to expand the opportunity for representatives to carry firearms and members of their staff and various legislators and participants uh, participants in government but not you of course not the citizenry which would still be banned from carrying firearms in the state house but uh jim lucas doing damage to his own cause in so many ways and and not only that but also uh, the efforts for legalization because of his antics and misbehavior thanks for listening to saturday night on the circle 93 wibc this was something else that happened completely off the wall i'm not sure what to make of it coming out of florida yes another florida man um, it, um at the florida atlantic university during a science class somebody barged into the room in the final 20 minutes bringing with them a red tote and began to take a shower now the professor just told him to quiet down and they'd finish the lecture I'm not kidding. I don't have that much time, and I have a lot to talk. <laughs> All right, so somebody call security. Carol, don't do that. All right, so Black be quiet. I'm coming up. You can shower as much as you want. Just be quiet. I'm going to shower. Silence. Thank you. I'm throwing the key away. It's gone. Love the I'm going to be honest with you. I hate this place. This zoo, this prison, this reality, whatever you want to call it, I can't stand it any longer. Jack, what is wrong with people? This is a YouTuber who thinks he's having a fun time. This isn't even a student. It's not even a student. I'd say expel his ass, but you can't because he doesn't go there. And if I were Florida Atlantic University, I'd be taking a closer look at security protocols around there. Yeah, that this was pretty risky like, yeah the shower guy <laughs> well um, i mean there's there's context i think where lawyers could probably argue their way into some kind of assault charge because he stripped down into like his skivvies and started scrub a dub dub there in the middle of the science class and this is a youtuber chibu dunga which what a stupid name yeah never heard of him yeah it well because he's doing moronic stunts like this yeah. like you know desperate for the clicks it, yeah. pe- people are so desperate for attention um as far as i know no charges have been filed but at the time students were a little bit concerned um in the articles that i read they're like well what if this is some kind of maniac you know somebody with like a mental problem i'd be wondering some dude just starts scrub himself down with a, a soap from the uh, oh hand sanitizer hand sanitizer right in the back of the class that's some weird stuff yeah like like that one episode from like it's always sunny in philadelphia what a great show yeah but which episode um where um i, I i'm forgetting the dad's name but um yeah um i i know who you're talking about but like he he like rolls around in hand sanitizer one time yeah with him and charlie right yeah yeah yeah. yeah. (laughs) i love that show um but it's not just limited to these antics aren't just limited to the college campus anymore also art museums which 
I, I think at a certain point, these art museums also have to be taking a look at their security because this keeps happening where these knuckleheads, whether it's for environmentalism or in this case, food safety, they keep throwing food at priceless works of art. This is why they're behind glass. This is why we can't have nice things. Some French ladies got real mad about something and decided it would be a great idea to throw soup at the Mona Lisa. It is crazy. We say to give a woman, woman power is like to give a gun to a monkey. We have stopped doing that ever since the 1999 Astana Zoo massacre. Now, if you can't speak French, I don't blame you. Why would anyone want to? But what they were essentially saying is uh, you cannot enjoy art while there's food insecurity around the world. And then they threw soup at the painting. Well, you're contributing to it, ladies. That food could have fed somebody. Instead, it's now on glass and somebody's got to clean up your met. Like, you could actually be feeding people or growing a garden or doing some farming instead it's this chasing social media clout nonsense just like chibu dunga by people who have nothing better to do with their lives and it frustrates me endlessly jack it frustrates me endlessly understandably Thanks for listening to Saturday Night on the Circle. Coming up next, we're going to talk about how the residents of Chicago continue to rebel under the weight of the illegal immigration crisis that Democrat policies have brought to their doorstep. Stay tuned. This is Saturday Night on the Circle on 93 WIBC. Welcome back to Saturday Night on the Circle. I'm Ethan Hatcher. Reporters are describing what's happened to Chicago as a migrant apocalypse, as the city's resources have been utterly overrun by the migrants sent to their threshold from Governor Greg Abbott and other border mayors who have used the opportunity of Biden's failures at the border to send busloads of migrants to what had been self-declared sanctuary cities, and now they are buckling under the pressure that has been brought as a result of their policy decisions. This was, as described by William Kelly, again, a migrant apocalypse. Let's bring in Chicago journalist William Kelly. William, good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Set the scene for us with what's happening in Chicago with this migrant crisis. Wow. Well, you know, this migrant apocalypse is really what uh, I'm hearing now. Uh, every Chicagoan that I talk to say that they've survived the lockdown, the looting, you know, the violent crime. And now they've got uh, to deal with uh, this migrant crisis that they believe uh, it will be the death knell of Chicago, uh, that Chicago is doomed. This is what I'm hearing from Chicagoans everywhere I go. I reluctantly must conclude, you're screwed, you're screwed, you're screwed. 
dude. Gee, so you're saying my generation faces the imminent prospect of a bleak and potentially apocalyptic future? That's right, son. What had been formerly a rock-solid voting block for Democrats is now under threat. Black voters in Chicago overwhelmed by how their votes are being diluted from the immigrant crisis. NPR reporting from August of last year to December of this year, they will spend two hundred and fifty two million dollars on the migrants two hundred and fifty two million dollars seventeen seventeen thousand migrants coming to this city and just in chicago if we just break that in half and they become families you got eight thousand five hundred families hispanics have 3.5 children i'm submitting to you in one generation just one generation the black vote will be null. They will have an additional 24,000 people on the voting rolls, along with the Hispanic population already here. They're playing chess, and you all are playing checkers. You are damning our youth, our next generation, to poverty. He's out of line. But he's right. The failures of the Biden administration will be felt for generations. And it's startling to see the deterioration that one administration has brought about in such a short amount of time. But it's absolutely real. And now Joe Biden is claiming that he needs further congressional authority in order to stem the tide of the border crisis when that isn't true. And we're going to talk about that more in hour two and play some clips of Joe Biden making these claims refuted directly by his action. Because let's not forget early on in the administration, he had hundreds of executive orders that explicitly undid the progress of the previous administration Donald Trump had made in the border. So we're going to talk about that. And also Senator Aaron Freeman coming into the studio up next. We're going to talk about SB 52. Don't miss it. to Saturday night on The Circle on 93 WIPC. Welcome back to Saturday Night on The Circle. I'm your bohemian codger, Ethan Hatcher. Thanks for listening. Catch my podcast uploaded to WIBC.com and SaturdayNightOnTheCircle.Fireside.FM. After the disastrous implementation of the Indigo Red Line with all its associated costs and frustrations, unbelievably, it seemed that the mutilation of Washington Street for the sake of a poorly planned transit expansion known as the Blue Line was all but inevitable. Just as all hope was lost, one man authored a bill that would push the brakes on this badly designed destruction of one of Indianapolis central thoroughfares for an underperforming bus line. Here to help explain why this bill was necessary, what it does, and its path through the General Assembly to the governor's desk is the author of SB 52. In the studio with me now, State Senator Aaron Freeman. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, so for the uninformed, tell us what SB 52 is, what it does, and why this whole thing is necessary. SB 52 is simply put, and as simple as it can be, is a one-year pause on any construction on Washington Street for the Blue Line so that there can be a study on dedicated versus shared lanes so no construction would happen until at least July 1 of 2025. It is a year 
pause, nothing more, nothing less. And for the hyperbolic nature about this from, you know, some friends on the other side of the political aisle, it seems this is not about taking buses away. This is not about taking budgets away. It is not about doing anything to Indigo. It's simply saying, folks, before we take 60 percent, three out of five, one lane each direction and the turn lane in the middle, before we take 60 percent of a roadway away for only buses, can we please have a conversation about cars and buses sharing lanes, which, by the way, in the sake of finding the almighty federal dollar, right, there are federal grants available, small starts grants, for shared lanes as there is for dedicated lanes. I wish Indigo would pursue those. I wish Indigo would work with us and try to find common ground here. But so far, that's not happened. So there are a lot of blue-haired malcontents who accuse this measure of being anti-democratic. Why, in your opinion, is it necessary for the state to intervene and push the brakes on this city initiative? Couldn't be further from the truth. In 2014, there was no ability to do this whatsoever. Zero. The city and some folks, Indigo and others, came to the state legislature with a plan. And that plan originally was, as originally drafted, was we want a 10% direct tax on business downtown. I do not have to tell you the thud that occurred and the no and the oh blank no in how that pushback was, right? No way that was going to happen. The compromise was, okay, fine, we'll allow for um, Indigo to expand, we'll allow for these bus rapid transit systems, no mention of dedicated lanes, and in fact, the CEO of Indigo at the time said there's no use for dedicated lanes, they wouldn't serve a purpose here. So, never was that on the table, and in an agreement between the, the city and the state, Indigo would have to raise 25% of their fares from the fare box. They would have to raise 10% through private donations, and neither of which has happened. They're not close to either one. So before the state says, hey, let's just continue down this road of, you know, I mean, certainly there were certainly huge problems with the red line. There's going to be problems with the purple line. Nonetheless, can we at least have a conversation about taking away 60% of an area that I do represent, and any suggestion that I don't is just nuts. I mean, my northern border is Washington Street. I mean, on on the east side of Indianapolis. So, any kind, and you know, it goes to for me. It goes to a you know, I represent a fine group of people that are paying this tax for a service that generally they're never going to use. Very few people that I represent actually use the service. The service is necessary. A bus is necessary for those that need it. Nobody's trying to take away a bus away. All I'm saying is, can we have a conversation about shared versus dedicated lanes? Absolutely. This is in no way anti-bus, which is a horribly straw man argument way to represent the the entire bill. And I live next to Washington Street. I live very close to the intersection of Washington and Emerson. So, I'm intimately familiar with how traffic operates on the east side of Indianapolis. And I frequently come through downtown to the west side of Indianapolis. And on game nights or on convention day, the one way of traffic of Washington Street is already at capacity and sometimes exceeding capacity. It's very difficult on those busy, high-traffic days when you have five lanes and you're taking away three of them for these buses and altering the flow of traffic. That's going to be a disaster. Washington Street is one of the central
central thoroughfare arterial lanes of Indianapolis. And what makes this city so great, in my opinion, is its ease of navigation, your ability to cross large distances in town and get where you want to go in a relatively short and efficient amount of time, and changing the layout of Washington Street and bottlenecking everybody into two lanes where that you know you have to have the buses have their own dedicated lanes is ridiculous. And in the portions of Washington Street <laughs> where we already do have dedicated lanes because the red line cuts across a portion of Washington Street, I often see the buses not utilizing the dedicated lanes. This is a terrible disaster, and I, I do agree. I think it's necessary for the state to come in and push the brakes on this just a little bit and give it a second thought. Because give it a second thing because the dedicated lanes are at issue here. It's not the idea of buses, and buses can serve the community, but they can do so by sharing the road. I think the state of Indiana has an absolute uh, requirement uh, to look at. And look, let's not kid ourselves here. I mean, a lot of this is being pushed from the federal government. A lot of mm-hmm. this build back better and some of these programs. I mean, certainly, to absolutely true that there is a bigger dollar amount available if you do dedicated lanes. There is also a significant pot of money, not as much, but a significant pot of money available for shared lanes. My position is, if you do not tear up the middle of the street for bus stations, right? And then you don't have to do all of this. You're going to spend less money, right? Not having to tear up the street. So that smaller pot of money is going to be sufficient. Now, we also need to have a conversation about, look, 40 maybe years ago, the state gave Washington Street, Meridian Street to the city. I think there needs to be a conversation about whether that was a good idea or not. And clearly, and this is not, by the way, any... The Hawkshead administration, I'm not saying anything, and you could say, and I will, I mean, it has been a bipartisan failure from numerous mayors in the past, both Republican and Democrat, who have not had the resources in the Department of Public Works budget to adequately maintain and to bring up to 21st century standards Washington Street and Meridian Street. No question the drainage needs to be better. No question the sidewalks need to be better. No question all of that infrastructure needs to be better. The question I would pose to folks is, can the city do it? I Look, the budgets are what they are. I mean, I don't think the city has the budget to do this. The state certainly does. So let's have a conversation about who should do this and what makes sense from a financial standpoint of how to, who, who improves it. The capital city is your front face forward for the entire state. It should be the jewel of the state. And it brings us down when you see potholes the size of a car Everywhere across town, it's not even a particular side of town. It's the whole—it's the whole of Indianapolis roadways. And let's also talk about what it would do for road safety when you're bottlenecking traffic and when you're, you know, overloading Washington Street, reducing it to one lane in either direction. What that would do for local neighborhoods when traffic seeks an alternative route and then goes through those neighborhood side streets, as opposed to using the arterial lanes that originally that kind of travel was designed. For. It's no question that it's going to have a huge impact. And I've said, it would. I, I've said, look, guys, I'm a dumb lawyer. I am not an engineer. I don't do traffic studies for a living. I don't do these kinds of things. But as a normal human walking the street who drives a car, I can tell you taking Washington Street to one lane will be disastrous for the commuting public. For those of people that want their car and want the freedom of a vehicle to get from point A to point B, look, for those that want a bus, 
I get it. For those that need a bus, I get it. I, absolutely, you should have your bus. Nobody's taking them away. Right. And I wish the, the hyperbolic nature <laughs> of the other side, and in particular, I mean, what is what has been directed at me is incomprehensible to me in terms of, guys, nobody's threatening anybody. Nobody's taking something away. Cars and buses can utilize the same lanes on the same road, and we will all be fine. Hell, I'll buy dinner. It's okay. Yes, no, the fever pitch of this issue has gotten absolutely ridiculous, and my socialist city council, uh, city council member, Jesse Brown, has been running around bullying businesses and using coercive tactics in order to stoke up fear about this bill. I can um, it's, I, it's absolutely absurd. I can assure you this: I've not met him. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know him. Um, he can look. I had maybe ten businesses testify in favor of the bill originally. Um, they have since back. Many of them have since backed down. Um, they've been bullied. They've been uh, called all kinds of things. Uh, they have a, an elected, an elected public official. Think about this. Yeah, an elected public official out boycotting the, threatening to boycott business. Are, are we going to go to? I mean, are we thinking about what the end repercussion of this is? So we're going to boycott business. Boycott then means the businesses close. What does that do for a community? I mean, look, you're not going to bully me. You're not going to threaten me. You're not going to get me to back down uh, this past the Senate. Uh, I have a very high degree of, of confidence this is going to pass the House. And folks are, I mean, we have to figure this out and we have to figure out how we're going to do shared lanes as opposed to dedicated I'm, lanes. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because how are we going to get this over the hurdle of passing the House and well, getting it to the governor's desk? Look, here's, look, um, I, look, I've enjoyed working with my friends in the House. In the past couple of years, this this issue's died in the House. Uh, there's always a chance, right? I mean, anytime you're in a, the legislative process, things can happen and people can change their mind. I have a high, very high degree of of likelihood this is going to pass the House. Uh, I'll work with my colleagues in the House. I've very much enjoyed working with Speaker Houston. He has been he's led on this issue. Um, I, I think he realizes that we have to figure this out. And everything that you said a minute ago, we are the capital city. We are the crown jewel. We are the economic engine of Indiana. And I think we have to take care of the capital city. And I want to do that, by the way, with the administration. I want to do that with the city of Indianapolis. I can work with them. They work with me. We can we can get a lot of things done if some, you know, people would just kind of get out of the way here and not be hyperbolic about this, right? But for people that want to go boycott businesses and they want to do do whatever you want to do, man. If, if that's what you think is going to do well by the city, good for you. I can assure you, I think differently. The people that I represent think differently, and you're not going to get me to back down, or you're not going to bully me getting out of the way. Well, fingers crossed, we can get this through. That'll restore a lot of my faith. In the uh, Republican General Assembly. Let's do that. And if you can introduce a uh, bill that would push the brakes on the two-way conversion of Michigan and uh, New York streets, oh, yeah. that would be great. And do something about property taxes. Come on. Go let's get together and restore faith in the Republican Party, man. Hey, well, understand. I mean, we, I wasn't in the legislature at the time, but you have property tax caps because of Republicans in the legislature and Mitch Daniels, frankly, at the time. And we we understand. I mean, property taxes, ha- we ta- we're My taking a hard look at it. My property taxes went up by 30%. 30% well, on average across my properties. Like, I can't do that on an annual basis. It's unsustainable. Well, you, okay, so when you asked me the question earlier about state versus local and why does the state get involved, I'm assuming nobody's going to dispute that the state should get involved with cities that because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, right? So your assessed value goes up. 
the city doesn't have to take all that money. They don't have to take all of that excess right growth there, but they are. So the state, I, we're going to get involved in that and say how much of that growth should you take, right? And again, that is a very prudent responsible thing for the state of Indiana to do and the legislature to do. We need to work with our cities. We need to work with our locals, but they need to work with us, too. I agree with that. Anything we can do to trim the taxes, I'm in favor of. Yeah, me too. Thanks for uh, spending time with me today, uh, State Senator Aaron Freeman. I appreciate it. Have me, have me back. I'd love to do it. Right. You're listening to 93 WIBC Saturday night on The Circle. Stay tuned. is Saturday Night on the Circle on 93 WIBC. I can hardly believe it. After a year of dithering, waiting around, President Biden has finally decided he's going to visit the derailment site at East Palestine, Ohio. Not really sure what the strategy was here. Because if anything, it's drawing attention to the fact that the administration has stalled and has let down the people of Ohio for more than a year now. And of course, he said that he didn't have enough time. He's far too busy. Let's not forget he's taken 130 days of vacation since that time. But Corrine Jean-Pierre oh, 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 made the announcement sometime this month the president will be visiting the town. Why, um, why did the administration decide that um, things have... I guess coalesced and it's now the time for uh, President Biden to go. So uh, the mayor and uh, community leaders invited the president uh, to meet with uh, East Palestine uh, residents and also assess uh, the recovery uh, progress that's been going on uh, for some time now, as you all know. And so the president had always said that he would go when it is most helpful uh, to the community. And with this invitation, obviously, uh, very recent uh, and the current uh, status of the recovery, we felt that the time was Right again, we got an invitation from the mayor and community leaders to uh, to come, and very very recently, and so we are working uh, with them to figure out uh, the best time to do that in February. I uh, I think I can smell shite. <laughs> yes, I can definitely smell shite. Sorry, did she say a very, very recent invitation? That invitation has since grown stale. In fact, it's gotten a little moldy because it's been sitting around for a year. It's gone bad. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they have continued to wish that the president would show them support in their time of turmoil, but the community has already been ravaged. Business owners in the community see right through this. They understand it's an election year. They understand the motive behind that. And if anything, that helps put fuel on the fire of showing how disingenuous this act really is. This was a, a East Palestine business owner saying that he doesn't buy this act from the president. I think it boils down to the American people have awakened to realize that the leader of our country did not show up to the greatest catastrophe of 2023. And now he's going to show up because it is an election year. Uh, and obviously the polls show that, that President Trump uh, came and supported us when he didn't have to. And I think we saw right through it from the beginning and not to make it political because I will support any president that serves our country because otherwise it's like, again, I've said on your program before, 
support. It's like rooting against your favorite team's quarterback just to see the backup. You know, it's it's a, it's a scenario where we know what he's doing. The American people see it, and now it's hey, we have to go visit East Palestine because we haven't done that yet and check the, check it off the yeah. board. Boom. Roasted. The ground has been contaminated. The community has been ravaged and it's been left to fester over the last year. This is drawing attention to the failures of the president. And I guess, you know, more power to him when uh, when your your opponents are making themselves look ridiculous. Don't object. But my goodness, and I feel sorry for the people of East Palestine, uh, parents who feel like their the needs of their children have been completely ignored by the federal government, like this woman. Joe Biden did not sign off on Governor DeWine's request, emergency request, re- related to those very issues. Uh, Jamie, just a thought. Fi- and it makes me wonder if he didn't come because he knew that they... There were dioxins here, and he left us to soak in these dioxins. And if he doesn't come in and take action, this is nothing but a photo op. They are playing politics with my daughter's lives and the lives of my family and everybody I've ever loved in my life. A bum. That's what he is. A bum. And the administration has already said, like, oh, we're not going to do any photo ops like drinking the water. But at this point, anything that the administration does makes this look completely disingenuous and completely political and arbitrary in nature in the lead up to a very contentious election year. And it, it, it just highlights how little Joe Biden cares about the average American. He's only consumed with himself, with being big, with continuing to be the president and then using that power to enrich himself and his family. Thanks for listening to 93 WIBC. Of course, coming up next, we're also going to talk about uh, continuing the conversation on the failure of Joe Biden's border policy. All these things coming to a head and illegal immigrants attacking police officers now and being let on let off on zero bail left to flee cross country yeah we'll be giving you more details coming up next stay tuned to 93 WIBC you're listening to Saturday Night on the Circle on 93 WIBC such an upside down world in which criminality is rewarded and heroism is punished. Illegal immigrants who attacked police officers allowed to run free crossing state lines while a former Marine was arrested for defending people on the subway. This in the crumbling ruins that we once called America. Thanks for listening to Saturday Night on the Circle. I'm your Bohemian Codger, Ethan Hatcher. That's producer Jack. Beep, 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 beep. Pushing the buttons and doing the things to make the show function. You can find my podcasts uploaded to WIBC.com as well as Saturday Night on the Circle.fireside.fm. This segment, we're talking about the illegal immigration crisis, or as it was called earlier in the show, the 
migrant apocalypse that is facing the nation and these illegal immigrants, not all of them are merely seeking a better life. Some of them are fleeing a criminal past and are utilizing the opportunity to commit crimes here in the States. This was something that Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, was warning about. In Texas, we believe we are following the Constitution. Uh, Article 4, Section 4, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. We have a right to defend American citizens and Texas citizens, and we're going to do it. And we're going to win at the court. We passed Senate Bill 4. I, I wrote most of that bill along with Governor Abbott, and that bill will be before the Supreme Court that says we have a right to defend ourselves against invasion because this is an invasion from third world countries well, that are coming here with health issues. They're uneducated, unemployed. We hear the. All we, they do is commit crime on the streets. We hear the earth. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. So illegal immigrants that already had a criminal background entered into the United States and involved themselves in a scuffle with law enforcement in which they kicked this police officer several times in the head. Four migrants were arrested. Uh, that was Servita Aroca, 19, Wilson Juarez, 21, Yoman Revron, 24, and Darwin Andreas Gomez, 19. So, you know, men in their uh, in their teens, late teens and 20s assaulting a police officer let out of jail with zero bond. They've since been lost track of. And now it's believed that they cross state lines in association with one of these state funded agencies that are uh, using their uh, federal funding to then transport migrants out of New York City to other places of the country. They're not stopping the illegal immigration. They're just shifting the numbers around a little bit. And this is naturally outraging New York police officers who put their lives on the line every day and then see this kind of criminal behavior rewarded and abetted by the city, including the district attorney, who meanwhile is also going after President Trump in an incredibly political move. Why aren't they in jail right now? They brutally attacked a New York City police officer and a lieutenant. Our criminal justice system is upside down. Daddy, chill. What the hell is even that? Get everybody out of my yard! It's absolutely disgraceful to the police officers of New York City who put their lives on the line and protect a, a population that ultimately has no respect for them. And Daniel Penny, meanwhile, the former Marine, he's continuing to face criminal charges. He had to plead not guilty, I think, a couple of weeks ago um, in one of the court hearings regarding his protection of subway uh, uh, riders who were being assaulted by this crazed maniac and he had a chokehold and uh, on the guy and, and he died in the process but he was saving lives from somebody who was threatening people and then he is now being charged while these illegal immigrants who were assaulting a police officer and kicking him in the head are allowed to go free it's absolutely ridiculous and Joe Biden is trying to deflect responsibility and say that he doesn't have have the authority to stop the immigrant or uh, stop the illegal immigration. He needs Congress to step in 
and then also support this uh, very misguided border bill, which would empower the federal government to allow a certain threshold of illegal immigration per day. And no, that's not the solution. But it's Biden is being very disingenuous when he sends flunkies out like Olivia Dalton to say that he needs more federal authority. Explain a little bit further why the president doesn't take some executive actions on the, on the border himself. The president has also been clear that he needs additional authorities from Congress. And part of what he's asking Congress to do here is to deliver those uh, authorities. Um, I'm not going to get specifically into more of what the bill says um, down on the, you know, the line items. But uh, the president's been really clear he needs additional authorities to secure the border. You're a liar. You're a liar. You know something that you're not telling us, you slimy scumbag liar. Let's turn back the clock to the very first days of the Biden administration when he enacted dozens of executive orders specifically designed to undo the progress that President Trump had made in addressing illegal immigration. And those were actions that could be taken at the executive level precisely because the executive already has the authority that has been granted by Congress to enforce the laws that are already on the books. He doesn't need extra authority. And in fact, it's this intervention all the way back in 2021 that helped pave the way for the problems we're experiencing today. At the time, Joe Biden was bragging about using his executive authority to steamroll over the progress that the former president had made. Today, I'm going to sign a few executive orders uh, to strengthen the immigration system, building on uh, the executive actions I took on day one to protect dreamers and uh, to end the Muslim ban and to better manage our borders. And that's what these uh, three different uh, executive orders are about. And I want to make it clear, there's a lot of talk with good reason about the number of executive orders that I've signed. I'm not making new law. I'm eliminating bad policy. Um, what I'm doing is taking on the issues that 99% of them, that the president, the last president of the United States, issued executive orders that I thought were very counterproductive to our security, counterproductive to who we are as a country, particularly in, uh, in the area of immigration. This is about... Uh, how America is safer, stronger, more prosperous when we have a fair, orderly, and uh, humane legal immigration system. With the first action today, uh, we're going to work to undo the moral and national shame of the previous administration that literally, not figuratively, ripped children from the arms of their families, their mothers and fathers at the border, and with no plan, none whatsoever, to reunify the children who are still in custody and, uh, and their parents. Do you have any evidence at all? Well, Your Honor, we've got plenty of hearsay and conjecture. Those are kinds of evidence. So if the president was sincere in any way, and we know he's not, about addressing the immigration crisis, something that he could do right now without needing any further congressional authority, is to reinstate all of those executive orders that he had rescinded in the early days of his administration. And at the second he did that, we would begin to see improvement because he would once again be empowering the federal government to enforce the laws that are already on the books. He doesn't need further authority to be granted him. But this is just a distraction. This is just a deflection. This is a means to gaslight you into somehow believing that the Republicans are responsible when this is squarely on 
on the shoulder of Democrats. There's no other way around it. And of course, Joe Biden has empowered irresponsible officials like Alejandro Mayorkas, who under his watch have seen the the rate of illegal immigration increase exponentially from a few hundred a day to a few thousand or tens of thousands in some cases crossing the border per day, hundreds of thousands of of illegal migrants per month um, and and exploding any other measure um, or or, uh, uh, any other level of illegal immigration that had been experienced in the past. And that's why the Republicans, one of the reasons why Republicans have chosen to advance articles of impeachment against Alejandro Mayorkas. Today is a grave day. We have not approached this day or this process lightly. Secretary Mayorkas' actions have forced our hand. We cannot allow this border crisis to continue. We cannot allow fentanyl to flood across our border, our criminals to waltz in undeterred. And we cannot allow a cabinet secretary with no regard for the separation of powers or the rule of law to remain in office. That is why today we present this committee with the articles of impeachment against Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. And make no mistake, this is a political strategy. Instead of focusing on other areas of government or reigning in runaway spending, the the Republicans are using this as a gesture to act like they're doing something productive when in actuality, because of the structure of the Senate, we know it's very unlikely Alejandro Mayorkas will actually be impeached, but it allows the Republican Party to frame their campaign around the issue of of immigration, which rightfully so is outraging the American people. And it is by design and it is through incompetent uh, leaders like Alejandro Mayorkas. But the best way to get them out of office is by replacing Joe Biden, because if you impeached Alejandro Mayorkas, he'd just stick in some other flunky who'd be doing the same thing and you would essentially make no progress. So it's not just about impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas. It's about getting rid of Joe Biden. And that's the way that we're going to start seeing progress on this issue. Thanks for listening to Saturday Night on The Circle. We've got one more segment to go, so stay tuned on 93 WIBC. See them tumbling down Pledging their love to the ground this is Saturday Night on the Circle on 93 WIBC. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Coasting things to a close. Thanks for spending your time with me. I'm your bespectacled curmudgeon, Ethan Hatcher, and we've covered just a whole heck of a lot of topics. If you missed a moment of the show, find my podcast uploaded to WIBC.com or Saturday Night on the Circle.com. Fireside.fm. Yesterday, of course, was Groundhog Day, a hallowed American tradition in which we use a groundhog to give us a forecast for the weather. And the news is good. It looks like, according to Good Morning America, we got an early spring coming. We are back now. Wow. 7.30, February 2nd. Today, a.k.a. Groundhog Day, and there he is in all his glory, Punxsutawney Field, just moments ago. 
predicting an early spring. As did Mr. Roper. As did Mr. Well, Ro- I, I just said he wouldn't see. He shouldn't see his shadow. Yes. <laughs> I mean, because it's this is the tw- only the 21st time out of like 137 yeah. that he has actually not seen the shadow. Okay. Spring. So. Right, early spring. Early yes. spring. Look. I don't think that the groundhog knows something that the weatherman doesn't, but I'll take any hope that I can get. I'm looking forward to an early spring, Producer Jack, because over the last week, I've been battling this stupid cold, and I guess you have, you've you gotten sick, too. Yeah. The, the bug's going around. Yep, it's going around. It's because it's the winter months. It always happens. It all, whenever, whenever everybody's stuck inside, all the germs are spread. We're getting each other sick, and I, I'm tired of it. Like that's I love the snow. I don't mind the cold, but the getting sick part, that's my least favorite aspect of winter. Yeah, same here. I'm, I'm ready to move on to spring, but hopefully moving on like without allergies or anything well see i also deal with allergies i'm I'm allergic to everything i'm allergic to like nature and grass and cats and i love cats i'm also allergic to dogs but just just everything um now uh so i will take the groundhog um and any any input that he can give us but it wasn't just Poxitani Phil that was there. Donald Trump also made an appearance for Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day. We're here with the most highly respected and incredible groundhog in the history of the world. And he saw his shadow. It was a beautiful shadow, and that means four more years of Trump. You know, I saw my shadow, too, this morning, and it was the greatest shadow in the history of the world. Crooked Joe saw his shadow and ran away from it. Nikki Haley couldn't see her shadow because she was too busy in an Escalade. You know what I'm talking about. And Chris Christie saw his shadow, but uh, NASA called it a solar eclipse. But my shadow and this groundhog shadow are the greatest shadows in the history of the world. Four more years of Trump are on the way. Four more years to make America great again. Believe me. Okay, that wasn't Donald Trump. That was a Donald Trump impersonator, but you gotta admit... He's he's pretty good. That's, that's, that's yeah. pretty dead on. Yeah, it was it was pretty close. Like I kind of like noticed that it was fake in but yeah, it was but pretty it, close. Like if you close your eyes and you're not watching the video feed, like you can totally envision the president saying that. Yeah. Yeah, his, his voice is on. Now, I can do a pretty good impersonation of President Barack Obama. I can't do it now because my voice is all screwed up with the cold, but 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 that's something that I can do. I, yeah. I love impersonations. I love yeah. I love people's ability to like mimic other voices. That's an incredible talent. I'd like to be a voice actor. Voice acting would be a pretty cool uh, uh, industry to work in. Yeah, that would be a pretty fun gig, I think, too. Mm-hmm. But like Mark Hamill, you know, in many ways, uh, his voice acting career is more substantial than his acting career. I mean, he he kind of got typecast after Star Wars. You know, he's everybody just sees him as Luke Skywalker, and he was never able to really break out of that. Yeah. But in the realm of voice acting, I mean, he's iconic. Yeah, he's, he's the Joker. He is the definitive, you know, iteration of the Joker. Whenever 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 anybody thinks about that character, they hear Mark Hamill's voice. Yeah. So that, I, I don't really know anything about Star Wars, to be honest. You don't know anything about Star Wars? I, What's wrong I, I haven't with you? Seen a, I haven't seen a single Star Wars movie. How? I'm sorry. <laughs> I know that's frowned upon. Well, look, we could sit down sometime. I have the entire box collection. I have the prequels. I got the, the original trilogy. No sequels. This is a no, a no sequel household. But uh, but we can watch the classic Star Wars, okay. the good Star Wars. I'm, I'm down. Thanks for listening to 90. 90- 
WIBC. Another edition of Saturday Night on the Circle coming to a close. It's been a great time. And I leave you with my parting words of wisdom, as always, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you're with, remember that life is a state of mind. And I'll see you next week on 93 WIBC. 